The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Environmentalism is an important movement that has helped us understand and care for our world and the creatures that live within it. We've been able to create better air, water, and land quality for humans to thrive in and are continuing to make our environment cleaner. Besides the expert guests that we'll introduce in a minute, I'm again joined by my co-host, Mary Jean Harris. Mary Jean, it seems that the environmental movement today has shifted from a genuine care for the environment to a totalitarian movement intent on controlling every aspect of our lives. Yes, it's become political, and like any political movement, there are vested interests tied to certain ideologies. Trying to overhaul our infrastructure and way of living for the sake of the environment and stopping climate change isn't based on facts. <laughs> You're right. Climate change is mostly a natural phenomenon. However, the left is leveraging this to push their political agenda. Although many people undoubtedly care for the environment and the world's poor, they're misguided by those in power who have other motives in mind. And it's the poor countries who will suffer the most from these policies. Oh, yeah, exactly. They need to have clean, reliable energy, not intermittent and expensive wind and solar power. It would, of course, be devastating to our developed society as well, the transition to these energy sources. But to do so with the impoverished communities, this will bring in huge hardships for them. Don't you think so? Yes, for sure. It'll be devastating. To discuss all this, our guest today is Dr. Cal Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Mary Jean, could you introduce Dr. Beisner? Yes, for sure. Dr. Cal Beisner is the founder and president of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a network of Christian theologians, natural scientists, economists, and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the proclamation and defense of the good news of salvation by God's grace. Dr. Beisner has a PhD in Scottish history from the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, and a Master of Arts in Society with specialization in economic ethics from the International College. He was Associate Professor of Historical Theology and Social Ethics at Knox Theological Seminary and of Interdisciplinary Studies at Covenant College. He has been an elder in the Presbyterian Church of America and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church planting a new congregation for the latter and serving on its pastoral staff for three years. Cal has written over 15 books and has lectured at universities, seminaries, conferences, and churches around the world. He has also testified as, as an expert witness on the ethics and economics of climate change and climate and energy policy before committees of the US Senate and House of Representatives. Dr. Beisner briefed the White House Council on Environmental Policy and presented a paper to a scholarly colloquium on climate change on the Pontifical Institute for Justice and Peace at the Vatican in Rome. Finally, Cal has spoken at multiple meetings of the International Conferences of Climate Change. So we certainly have a well-qualified guest today. So welcome to the show. <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me on. It's a yeah, pleasure. Sure. So Cal, maybe we can start with what is biblical earth stewardship and how does it differ from the modern environmental movement? We could start there. We could probably end there too, because it'd take an hour or two to go into it in any real depth. 
but I think I can give you a short version. We at the Cornwall Alliance have uh, come to try to approach biblical earth stewardship very much in terms of Genesis chapter 1, particularly verse 28, where having made Adam and Eve in his own image, male and female, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas, the birds of the air, and everything that moves on the face of the earth. So literally everything, animate and inanimate alike. We are supposed to rule over all of that, and we're supposed to subdue it. Uh, the subduing aspect indicates that uh, were it not for our subduing it, it wouldn't be what God wants it to be. And the ruling indicates that once we've subdued, we should continue that rule. Uh, but because of the influence of, for example, Lynn White Jr. Uh, in an article called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, published in Science Magazine back in 1967, uh, White said that Judaism and Christianity uh, were really to blame for ecological destruction because uh, they appealed to this verse as license to essentially rape and destroy and pillage the earth. Now, of course, one can go through the whole history of rabbinic and Christian commentary on Genesis 1.28 and never find any, any believer arguing that way. So this was complete uh, straw man. It was, it was uh, misrepresentation. Nonetheless, because White's essay has been reprinted hundreds of times in anthologies used by environmental science students uh, around the world since the 1960s, that thinking has been quite prevalent. So mm. what we recognize is that it's very important for us to show why that is not what this verse means. And we do that by looking at the our earlier context. Knowing that God created humanity in his image, the way we exercise dominion should reflect the way he exercises dominion. And we find that out from the earlier part of the chapter. Mm -hmm. What do we find? Well, let's see. God started with nothing and he made everything. Uh, and then he brought light out of darkness. He brought order out of chaos. He brought life out of non-life. He brought great abundance and variety of life. And he told each variety of life to be fruitful and multiply and, and, and fill its niche in the earth. And so if our dominion is to reflect his, well, okay, we can't bring anything out of nothing, but the better we get at bringing more and more out of less and less, the more we reflect God's image. Uh, we don't make up new truths, but we discover truth, and that comes from God. Uh, we discover it either from his special revelation in Holy Scripture or from his general revelation in the creation around us, uh, we should be bringing greater and greater order out of lesser and lesser order. We should be enhancing life, bringing more and more life out, uh, out of the world around us, and, and we should be encouraging the continuance of varieties of life. All of those should characterize human dominion, biblical earth stewardship. And so we've come to sort of summarize that this way that men and women made in God's image should be working lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth 
to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors so that we're addressing the two great commandments to love mm -hmm. God and to love neighbor. Now, this contrasts with most environmentalists' worldview and way of understanding humanity and humanity's relationship with the rest of nature in some pretty important ways. First off, most environmentalists are either naturalists, that is, materialists, matter and energy and motion is all that exists, so there's no God, and therefore there's no distinction between creator and creation. Or they tend to be pantheistic, God is everything, panentheistic, God is to the universe as the soul is to the body, or animistic or spiritualistic, uh, God's little spirits in inhabit rocks and trees and rivers and mountains, etc. Uh, all of these ways, again, fail to recognize the distinction between the creator and the creature. Mm -hmm. What they also do then is they rid us of an important hierarchy that we see in Scripture. God is the supreme authority. Humanity, made in his image, is beneath him. And then the rest of the earth's creation is beneath humanity. Mm -hmm. What tends yeah. to happen for environmentalists is that people uh, become the tail that the environmental dog wags and mm -hmm. uh, we 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 turn that that hierarchy upside down, and then more often than not, we leave God out of it completely. Mm -hmm. uh, now, also because these other two worldviews leave out the God of Scripture, they tend to see nature as the result of blind chance over time, and consequently, they'll tend to see it as very fragile, delicate, prone to catastrophic consequences from relatively minor perturbations. And yet, uh, sort of paradoxically, most environmentalists also think of the natural world as really nurturing and abundant in its services to mankind if we would just stop interfering with it. So, for yeah. instance, they'll use this... <laughs> formula-looking sort of thing. It's not truly a formula, but I equals PAT. This was derived by uh, Paul Ehrlich. Impact on nature, human impact on nature, which, by the way, is always assumed to be bad. Mm -hmm. I equals population times affluence times technology. So I increases as population and affluence and technology increase, so if you want to minimize human impact on nature, which is what you want to do if it's very, very fragile but naturally nurturing, then you should have fewer people, you should have them less affluent, and you should have less technology. The vision is really to return to some sort of a harmony with nature. Now, if you really buy into that, you should have no objection to being dropped by parachute into the Brazilian rainforest with no clothes, no tools, and no companions. Because you should think, well, nature will sustain me. In reality, yeah. you'll probably not live more than a day or two. <laughs> nature is mm -hmm. a very dangerous place, which is why it needs to be subdued and ruled. From the biblical worldview perspective, an infinitely wise God designed, an infinitely wise God created, and an infinitely faithful God sustains this world. As a result, we think of it not as highly delicate, fragile, prone to catastrophic results from relatively minor perturbations, but rather as robust, resilient, and self-correcting. 
uh, a concept, by the way, that is reflected in what is called Le Chatelier's principle, which mm, is that nature is dominated by negative rather than positive feedbacks. And we can see that simply in that the world has not spun off into utter catastrophe yet. Uh, and and if it were dominated by positive, positive feedbacks, you would have runaway positive feedback loops that would take any perturbation and make it ultimately destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, we recognize as Christians that while God created the world to be robust, resilient, and self-correcting, human sin brought divine judgment. And in response to our sin, God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles it will bear. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your bread. And what this means is that nature is not naturally all that nurturing. Hunter-gatherer society can at most sustain about one or two people per square mile in the very best tropical habitat, you know, tropical paradise. Current global human population density, excluding Antarctica, is about 55 people per square mile which mm-hmm. means that we must be doing something very different from hunter-gatherer. Yeah. We are changing nature so that it's able to, to, to support us, or rather, we support ourselves by our transformation of nature. And mm-hmm. when we do that, instead of having lives that are solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, to quote Hobbes, we can have lives that are wonderfully filled with fellowship and interaction with other human beings, that are uh, wealthy and prosperous, that are uh, flourishing and and healthy and long, which is reflected in the fact that since the Industrial Revolution, average human life expectancy at birth has risen from about 27 or 28 years to now about 70 years worldwide and 80 years in developed countries, highly developed countries, and it's still rising everywhere. That's a a beginning of the difference between the two different worldviews on human relationships with nature. So in the case of the environmentalists, they would want to see less and less people because they don't consider us any more important than the rest of nature. But the biblical earth stewardship would probably oppose things like abortion or euthanasia or whatever. They would definitely be putting humans above the rest of the creation. Yeah, that is correct. In addition to writing on this difference between the environmentalist and the biblical worldview in a paper called The Competing Worldviews of Environmentalism and Christianity that's on Cornwall Alliance's website at cornwallalliance.org, I've also written on this, this whole issue of the threat that environmentalism, and unfortunately even among some Christians, the so-called creation care movement, poses to the true pro-life movement. You you can look at all the standard dictionaries, and they all point out that the term pro-life arose in the controversy over abortion in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, and it was coined to to put a positive spin on the the anti-abortion movement. But now some people are saying, well, okay, you should be pro-life for the whole of life. Well, you know, actually I am. I think that everyone has a right against having his life taken unjustly by other people. But what these folks tend to mean by that instead is 
okay? If you're pro-life, you should be a pacifist. Even if that means that some very, very evil ruler of another country kills millions and millions of people because you refuse to resist. Or if you're pro-life, you should reject the death penalty for premeditated murder, uh, which means that murderers get away with it, right? Uh, which is, doesn't seem terribly pro-life to me. Or if you're pro-life, then you're going to prioritize minimizing pollution that has health consequences, risks for life, over the productive activity of which the pollution is the byproduct. The problem with that, of course, and I, I used to be a professor of ethics, as, as uh, Mary Jean mentioned, in ethics, you learn that there's a difference between intention and lack of intention, accident, right? So that we distinguish between premeditated murder and accidental homicide, for instance. Well, in abortion, every successful abortion yields a dead baby on purpose. That's the intent, right? With pollution, nobody builds a factory for the purpose of emitting toxic air and water and solid waste chemicals. People build factories for the purpose of producing phones and cars and, and clothing and shelter and all of these other things that are of great benefit to human beings. And the pollution is an unintended byproduct of that. It's an externality in economists' terms. And that's unintended. <clears throat> so for us to oppose pollution is not the same thing ethically as to be anti-abortion, because in anti-abortion, you're opposing the intentional killing, whereas in opposing pollution, we're trying to reduce the unintentional harm to life. Now, both. I think should be done, but we really cheapen the meaning of pro-life when we apply it to these environmental issues. I've written about that in a small book called How the Creation Care Movement Threatens the Pro-Life Movement. That's also available on Cornwall Alliance's website at uh, in our, uh, our online store, cornwallalliance.org slash shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because one of the things that strikes me is if humans are just considered equivalent to rabbits, let's say, in the environmental mm -hmm. movement, if you have too many rabbits, you cull the rabbits. So they would have no qualms about culling humanity. Well, uh, no surprise. Uh, the top leaders of most of the world's largest environmentalist organizations generally agree that optimal human population would be something in the neighborhood of 300 to 500 million people meaning we have to get rid of about 97% of us. Now, most of them really don't favor going out and you know shooting people in the head or intentionally starving people. What they do want to do, though, is to make the growing of people to maturity so expensive that already matured people, biologically matured people, choose to have fewer. They want to depress fertility rates so that human population peaks and then declines and eventually meets that optimal three to 500 million measure instead. Now, instead, uh, with, with from the biblical perspective, the Christian perspective, we see every human life as, as sacred, as, as a wonderful expression of the image of God. And we see people not as fundamentally consumers and polluters, 
which is the way environmentalists see us, but rather as producers and stewards. As mm -hmm. my, my friend and mentor, the late Dr. Julian Simon put it, on average, every mouth born into the world is connected to two hands, and more importantly, a mind. And that mind can guide those two hands to produce far more than the mouth consumes. Uh, back in the 1980s, when I wrote my book, Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population Resources in the Future, I pointed out that the average American male in the 1980s produced about 13 times what he consumed in a lifetime, while the mm -hmm. average American female produced about six times what, what she consumed in her lifetime, which, of course, could really stoke the egos of the males, right? <laughs> Until we remember that, of course, the average American male came from the average American female. <laughs> the woman produces the man. Yeah, we don't uh, make any people. <laughs> right. But anyway, we are not fundamentally consumers and polluters. We are fundamentally producers and stewards, which is why the long-term price trend of every single thing that we extract from the earth, mineral, vegetable, animal, is downward adjusted for inflation, and more importantly, adjusted for wages. Almost all of them have fallen over the last 200 years by more than 99% in inflation and wage indexed uh, price. And since price is a measure of scarcity, and the more scarce something is, the higher its price, if price is declining, scarcity is declining which means that these things are becoming more abundant over time, not less. Far from running out of resources, we're getting more and more resources. And that's because people make resources. Resources are not natural. Raw materials are natural. But resources are the consequence of human activity. There's only one resource that is going the opposite direction price-wise, and that's people. Mm. At the very same time that our population is rising, our value measured in inflation-adjusted wage is rising, which means economically our scarcity is rising. Mm -hmm. So we're becoming more scarce. Everything else is becoming less scarce. And that's because God made us in his image. Could you tell us about the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship and also yeah. how that led you to form the Cornwall Alliance in 2005? Yeah. Well, the Cornwall Declaration on Environmental Stewardship is a, a simple two-page statement of principles that came out of a three-day colloquium of about 35 scholars on environmental stewardship held at a retreat center in West Cornwall, Connecticut, hence the name, back in 1999. And those of us who participated uh, were thinking, you know, we need really try to try to spread the, the ideas here. Uh, when we first released it in March of 2000, it had already gained the endorsements of over 1,500 religious leaders. And since then, it's been endorsed by many more people. We frankly don't keep track of it anymore in that regard. But it, it states kind of the basic principles that I've just been talking about. It also points out, for instance, that much of the environmental movement tends to focus on highly speculative problems rather than problems that are empirically well-established and tends also to uh, to really opt more and more for government control over things as a solution to the problems rather than uh, human freedom and, and markets to solve these problems. And we think that 
the actual testimony of history is that freedom and markets do a better job of protecting the environment than do governments. I mean, this is why you find graffiti on public bathroom walls and not on your bathroom wall at home. You have <laughs> yeah. private property and you have an incentive to take care of it. So the Cornwall Declaration offers a couple of pages of basic principles. And we founded the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation in 2005, initially named the Interfaith Stewardship Alliance. And uh, it's just grown over the 17 and a half years since then. It's a network of just under 70 different evangelical Christian scholars, about a third are natural scientists, including, by the way, some of the world's top climate scientists like Dr. Roy Spencer, uh, Dr. David Legates. Roy is on our board and is an advisor and a senior fellow. David is our director of research and education as well as a senior fellow. Then about a third of our scholars are economists, most specializing in either uh, development or environmental economics. And about a third are theologians, philosophers, and, and uh, ministry leaders. And so we try to integrate the insights of those various different disciplines to provide a highly interdisciplinary approach to environmental stewardship that brings together worldview, theology, ethics, empirical science, theoretical science, empirical economics, theoretical economics. And I think the result is that we've put out some really good stuff. Uh, yeah, we're, we're sure. very, very pleased with the uh, information that we have at cornwallalliance.org. We also, by the way, have a podcast called Created to Rain. Uh, that people can can uh, hear. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other platforms. Right, right. So I wonder if you can actually talk about why it's important to provide the poor with clean, affordable energy rather mm. than the so-called renewable energy that our government seems to think we should all use. <laughs> yeah, very quickly, you know, energy is absolutely indispensable to all work. In fact, energy is defined as the capacity to do work, right? Mm -hmm. And work is what gives us food, clothing, shelter, medical care, education, transportation, communication, and everything else that gives us a flourishing life. So the more work you can get done, the more of all those things you can have. But the, the, the amount of work that you can get done is dependent on the amount of energy that you can apply. Well, the amount of energy that you can apply is dependent in part on the price you have to pay for that energy. Well, you know, much of the world is highly developed already. Uh, we enjoy uh, plenty of food, clothing, shelter, everything else. But there are still about uh, one and a half to two billion people who are unplugged, as my friend uh, Robert Bryce puts it. They have zero access to electricity, and most of them have hardly any access to energy other than wood and dried dung yeah. used to cook their food and, and heat their huts, right? Mm -hmm. And another roughly billion people or thereabouts have only very intermittent access to electricity. Consequently, what they need is abundant, affordable, reliable energy on a massive scale, far beyond what most of us can ever comprehend. And it has to be instant on demand, 24-7, 365. And that can only be provided by non-intermittent, highly energy-dense sources. 
like nuclear in some few locations, hydro, large, large uh, dams uh, with turbines in them, and the so-called fossil fuels, hydrocarbons, uh, coal, oil, and natural gas. Uh, it cannot be provided by wind and solar. It cannot be provided by uh, biofuels, things like that. Their density is too low, and for wind and solar, they're highly intermittent, they're unpredictable, and consequently, they can't provide the kind of energy that's necessary to lift and keep whole societies out of poverty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, we have to go for a break now. Our guest today is Dr. Cal Beisner, and we're learning a lot about the philosophy of environmentalism versus the stewardship of creation that the Cornwall Alliance stand for. So this is really, really interesting. It actually shows that much of what the environmental movement stands for is, in fact, against the whole concept of human survival. I'd like to remind our listening audience that we rely on donations to keep our show running. We hope that you'll consider donating at icsc-climate.com. And now we're going to return to our interview with Dr. Cal Beisner after this break. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared. Sea level rise has not been unusual and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. 
brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. So we're back with Dr. Pal Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a network of Christian theologians, natural scientists, economists, and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship and other things. So Mary Jean, over to you. Yeah, so uh, what we'd like to ask next is, what was the reaction to your open letter to Pope Francis on climate change? And do you think that this made a difference in the Pope's views on climate change? Overall, much of the reaction to the letter was, well, I suppose we could say it was predictable depending on the perspective from which people came. Some people thought it was just terrible. And yet, typically, what they thought was terrible was simply that it opposed what the Pope had said, not because they thought it was not well-reasoned. We didn't encounter very many careful arguments in response to it at all. Other people thought it was outstanding. Uh, we had, um, gee, I'm trying to remember now, it seems to me that we had close to 400 endorsements by top-ranking scientists and economists and and uh, as well as theologians and other religious leaders uh, when we made it public. So that's one way of looking at the response uh, in terms of the broader public. We also received information from someone who was who had ties inside the Vatican that our letter uh, which we published before Laudato Si Pope Francis's environmentalist encyclical was published that our letter had a, a significant impact on the actual composition of Laudato Si what we were told was that an earlier draft of Laudato Si had had a very long discussion of climate change, complete with citations from various different sources. And what actually wound up came, coming out, Tom, if you'll remember, Laudato Si had only one paragraph, and it wasn't even a very long one, on climate change. Mm -hmm. Unlike most of the rest of the paper, which was loaded with citations to authorities, right, sources, there wasn't a single citation in that paragraph. 
and mm -hmm. it was relatively mild. Uh, that's not the way the media portrayed it. The media portrayed the statement as, as a huge uh, endorsement of the climate alarmist message. But whereas most of the rest of Laudato Si' focused on a variety of other different environmental issues and generally took a pretty pessimistic approach to them, which we think is generally not well supported empirically, that one paragraph on climate change was was pretty mild by comparison. So from someone who had, and I, I can't name him, <laughs> uh, would probably get him in big trouble, but from somebody with very tight ties inside the Vatican, we have good reason to believe that our our letter helped to tame that document. Wow, that, that's pretty impressive because, of course, millions of people would read it and, and actually follow it and take it very mm -hmm. seriously. So if your organization did nothing else except that, it was a major, major impact. Well, we like to think so. Uh, and we also have tried not to do nothing else. We've done a number <laughs> of other you know, public statements on various issues. And of course, our, our website at cornwallalliance.org has hundreds of articles and uh, I suppose about a dozen really major papers. We have a YouTube channel, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a Facebook page, and we're on Twitter. So we try to communicate through all these different avenues and the most recent major project that we've done is that uh, Dr. David Legates, our director of research and education, uh, recently retired a year ago from a long career teaching climatology at the University of Delaware and before that at Louisiana State and Oklahoma State. David and I have edited a, a major book on climate change and or climate and energy policy, rather, the, the case for realism that is in the editorial process now at its publisher, Regnery Publishing. And we uh, we look forward to its coming off the press probably late this year. Yeah, that's great. great. And uh, speaking of the Cornwall Alliance, what is uh, your organization engaged in for the month of March? We dedicate the month of March each year, especially to praying for the poor and for the environment. And on the 25th of March, we hold our annual Day of Prayer for the Environment and the Poor. We chose that date because that's the birthday of Norman Borlaug, uh, the greatest hero whose name most people have never heard. Uh, he, was, he was the 1970 Nobel Peace Prize recipient for his work as an agronomist developing higher yield and higher disease-resistant varieties especially of wheat, but eventually also rice and maize, corn, uh, and soybeans, other staple crops that, that earned him the nickname Father of the Green Revolution, or as a biography of him uh, is titled, The Man Who Fed the World. His development of these, these new varieties of staple crops uh, resulted in increasing crop yields by upwards of five, six, eight, even 10 times what they had been prior to those new varieties. That's what enabled world food production to actually far outstrip, far outpace human population growth. And this was at the very time that people like Paul Ehrlich 
were saying, uh, you know, human population was was growing so rapidly that it was outstripping all of the resources that we needed. And so Ehrlich, for instance, instance in his 1968 book, The Population Bomb, which ironically came out after the Green Revolution was well underway and, and its its consequence was already predictable, but Ehrlich has been wrong about practically everything all through his career anyway. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the population bomb, Paul Ehrlich, uh, said that uh, the battle to feed humanity was over. Regardless of what we might do, hundreds of millions of people were going to starve to death in the 1970s from rampant famines because population was outpacing food production. Mm -hmm. The reality is that there were no famines in the 1970s other than uh, fairly restricted ones that were caused directly by government oppressive activities, not by any natural failures. And there have been no natural famines since then. Uh, all yeah. famines since then have been caused by government oppression. And uh, instead of running out of food, we have more people with far better diets than any time in human history. Ehrlich also said that we're going to run out of a wide variety of different minerals, oil and, and gas and, and uh, various metals. And uh, the late Julian Simon proposed a bet. He said, uh, you, Paul, you name 10 minerals of your choice. And I will bet you that in the next decade, a decade from now, their inflation-adjusted price will have fallen, and uh, you will bet that their inflation-adjusted price will have risen. And if it falls, they're less scarce. If it rises, they're more scarce. Ehrlich took the bet and uh, wound up having to write a hefty check to Simon, which all went. Oh, is that right? Charity. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he's refused ever to enter into such a bet since then. <laughs> I don't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I do blame him for his point of view in the first place. I find Tom McDonald so encouraging, you know, like his rap videos, and I'll share it with you, uh, Cal, afterwards, and I'll also put it under the Thank podcast. He, he talks about things like he says, I don't want my daughter to grow up to be my son <laughs> you know I mean, he, <laughs> right. he, he really hits the nail on the head he has yeah. one called uh, people are so dumb and then he goes through all the politically correct woke stuff and he shows how it's all wrong he says don't defund police defund the media who lie through their teeth you know with <laughs> 64,000 comments from young people all saying wow this guy's great we agree so do you see Cal that there is perhaps hopefully an impatience on the part of young people with the woke philosophy, you know, with the anti-human philosophy, do you see young people, some of them, waking up? I do. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that as the practical implications of a lot of environmental policy begin to be clearly felt. Uh, frankly, Europe, Europe uh, escaped a judgment this year because it had an extraordinarily mild winter. If it had had a more average winter, we'd have seen huge shortfalls of the fuels necessary for Europe's electric grid. And you'd have seen thousands and thousands of people dying for lack of electricity during the blackouts that would have ensued. Uh, so, you know, I think we should thank God 
for that better than usual winter weather this year. But that's not going to continue all the time. Uh, what we are going to see, because of increasing reliance on on low density, high intermittency wind and solar in more and more electric grids around the developed world, is uh, people who are used to 24 7, 365 instant on demand electricity and have been used to that for 30 or 40 or 50 years, right, are suddenly going to be experiencing more and more blackouts. During those blackouts, people will die. Uh, people dependent on machines for their, their uh, survival are going to die. People are going to die for lack of adequate heat in their homes. You know, um, because of the increases in electric rates in the United Kingdom from about 2008 to 2012, um, the excess winter death rate uh, of, of Britons increased by, on the average over the years, those years, by about 40,000. Now, you always expect some extra uh, winter deaths because winter is harder on, on people than, than summer is. But excess winter deaths increased that much just because of the increase in energy prices at that time, causing what the Britons began to call, and the term has spread around the world now, energy poverty. Uh, that's going to become more and more common. And I think as people see the actual pragmatic result of these policies, they're going to become less and less patient with mm -hmm. them. Uh, I also take, frankly, some, some uh, encouragement from a saying of Winston Churchill, uh, who said, if you're not a liberal when you're young, it's because you have no heart. And if you're not a liberal when you're old, it's because you have no brain. You know, if you're not a conservative when you're old, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sorry, a conservative when you're old. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's because you have no brain. You know, compassion, frankly, can can develop in a person pretty quickly. Knowledge takes a long time to acquire. Mm -hmm. Real wisdom takes a long time to acquire, and so it shouldn't be surprising to us that. The younger people are, the more likely they are for their views to be driven by their feelings, by their, their feeling of compassion. And as they age, they realize that, well, as, as the late Walter Williams, uh, a Black economist here in America, marvelous economist, uh, as he put it in a sentence in an end note to his great book, The State Against Black, uh, Blacks, Truly compassionate policy requires dispassionate analysis. I think that's one of the most brilliant statements I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And we need to learn to combine great compassion as a motivator with great dispassion as a truth seeker, a truth mm -hmm. discoverer. And then when we do combine those two together, that's when we can do the most good for our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So we we have to wrap up in five minutes. And Mary Jean, I think you had another question that maybe would be great to ask before we finish off. Um, yeah. So just to follow up, what are your uh, plans for the Cornwall Alliance uh, for the future with respect to climate change and also promoting economic development? Yeah. 
Uh, well, let's see. We are beginning to work right now on K through 12. Uh, we're starting with middle school uh, curriculum, video curriculum, a series of short videos that will be accompanied then by written curriculum as well. Uh, and we see this as probably about a three-year project until we actually have K through 12 curriculum that can be used. Uh, we're, we're aiming first for homeschools and private, especially uh, religious schools. Uh, but eventually, we hope to be able to make this suitable for use in uh, America's public schools as well. So we're working on that. Uh, I mentioned the book that uh, David Legates and I have recently edited on uh, uh, climate and energy policy, the case for realism. Uh, we uh, were just entering into negotiations with another video producer, a young man who's done just some amazing work over the past, probably shouldn't, shouldn't go into specifics on this, but uh, he would be working with us to produce a documentary on these things. Uh, we're, we're always reaching out to find ways that we can cooperate with other groups as well. Uh, we, of course, you know, Tom is aware of this. We, we cooperate with the Heartland Institute, the CO2 Coalition, uh, the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, uh, more and more of uh, different organizations. Mm -hmm. So uh, we provide speakers, by the way, for uh, churches, schools, uh, colleges. Uh, we can provide expert witnesses for legislative committees considering uh, different pieces of legislation and policy. So mm -hmm. all of these things that are, are, are things that we can do. Uh, we are uh, working really hard at growing the audience for our podcast. That is clearly a, a, a vehicle, a medium that tends to uh, appeal, especially to younger people. Uh, mm -hmm. So Created to Rain is that podcast. And right. we've had very good response to that so far. Yeah. Uh, one, one quick thing at the end here I'd like to talk about, and that is, it sounds to me like your message should really appeal not just to Christians and uh, people of faith of other religions, but also to agnostics. Because, I mean, if people want to have a positive human future, they need to value humanity and they need to actually make decisions that, that actually help us prosper. Yes. So surely, surely people who are agnostic as well should find actual comfort and 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 interest in your organization. Yeah, I think so. Um, Tom, that reminds me that when I wrote my book, Pros uh, Prospects for Growth, A Biblical View of Population Resources in the Future, I, I had studied very, very heavily Julian Simon's writing in his The Economics of Population Growth and The Resourceful Earth and uh, the the uh, the ultimate resource, other books and many articles, and the publisher uh, had sent a pre-publication manuscript to Dr. Simon, asking if he would consider endorsing it. He did, and then he actually actually communicated to me. We became good friends afterward, and I I became the managing editor of his massive book called The State of Humanity that Blackwell published in 1995. But he wrote to me later saying, uh, or actually it was uh, uh, during a phone call, he said that, uh, said, Cal, you've been able to give a theological explanation for why human beings 
can be creative and productive and good stewards that is better than what I've been able to give precisely because I didn't approach it theologically. He said, I could show the empirical evidence for the fact. I didn't explain it. Now, Simon, he was Jewish. I don't think he was an agnostic. I think he was an actual theist, but his approach was not specifically religious and theological. But he recognized that this approach that we use, recognizing the imago dei in men and women, does offer a deeper, uh, more fundamental explanation of the specialness of human beings. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, I think is fundamental. I mean, people talk about humanity as if we're just simply consumers <laughs> and polluters. And they ignore all the wonderful, wonderful things that humanity have done. I mean, everything from yeah. Mozart, you know, to solving a lot of the world's pollution yeah. problems through, you know, this fellow Borlaug, for example, yeah. but also our walking on the moon and eventually expanding out into the universe. Yeah. I mean, humans have an amazing future. Our guest today has been Dr. Kyle Beisner. He's with the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And that's an amazing group that people have got to look up, not only if you're Christian, but of course, if you're from other faiths, and also if you're agnostic as well, because it preaches and promotes the idea that we have to help the poor and protect the environment, while, of course, ensuring that humanity is continuing with a flourishing future. So thanks for being on our show, Cal. Tom, thanks very much. Mary Jean, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being with you. And yeah. uh, if I can quickly, I'll just mention one other thing. Yeah. Through the month of March, as our way of saying thank you, as anyone donates any amount tax deductible uh, and asks for it, we'd be glad to send a copy of a wonderful biography of Norman Borlaug called Hero for the Hungry. And it's particularly well-suited for young readers and I would love to see so many read it and be inspired to have heroic lives like Borlaug's. Yeah, it's a great thing to celebrate. So this is Tom Harris, Mary Jean Harris, and our guest, Dr. Cal Beisner, signing out from the other side of the story. What you just heard was the 92nd episode of The Other Side of the Story, the program Dr. Jay Lair and I started in May 2021. In that time, our audience has expanded to over 50,000 listeners now on many platforms across the Internet. We at the International Climate Science Coalition have interviewed guests mostly about energy and environment, climate change in particular, but we've also covered topics ranging from health and fitness, a particular love of mine, as well as Dr. Lair, of course. He was, after all, an Ironman triathlete, to Ukraine, to the fight for freedom. Our guests have included renowned experts such as Greenpeace co-founder, now a climate realist with the CO2 Coalition, Dr. Patrick Moore. We also interviewed Dr. David Legates, also with the CO2 Coalition, and Dr. Willie Soon, an astrophysicist at the Solar, Stellar, and Planetary Sciences Division of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Our guests also included James Taylor, president of the Heartland Institute, Alex Epstein, probably the world's strongest promoter of fossil fuels, as well as two of the men who put America on the moon, Jim Peacock and Tom Moser, now with the right climate stuff. Their motto is, in God we trust, everyone else bring data. The shows have been great fun, and even though Dr. Lair passed away in January, 
I'm sure he would really, really want this program to continue. Running the program takes hard work, which our team loves to do, but it also takes money, of course. So if you've been enjoying this show, I ask that you visit the International Climate Science Coalition website at icsc-climate.com. That's icsc-climate.com. And click on the big red donate button at the top to help us continue to bring you this program every week. In the meantime, we have amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned to the other side of the story. 